Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. <laughs> I said this recording has finished. Oh no, there we go. Okay. Finish before we I know. started. Done. Okay, thanks for coming. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Welcome to Chick's Tree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. I am Annie and that is Phoebe. Hello, it is me. Hello. How's <laughs> how's life? How's things? How's tricks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. I thought I'd tell you a bit of a research update. Oh, please do. Um, I am researching for a client at the moment, uh, doing a big deep dive into their family. There's a lot of sadness, there's some happiness, there's, you know, all sorts of things, some lost ancestors that I found. One of the lost ancestors, she just sort of disappeared. And one of the clues that I found was she died at Kew. And usually that would indicate, it just says Kew. Victoria. It could be that, yeah, in Victoria. It could be that she died in the suburb more often than not, she had been, she would have been institutionalised and it was at the Q asylum. Oh. Anyway, she had a very sad life. She um, she had come to Australia. Her sister was here. She married relatively quickly when she got here. She was, you know, early 20s. Yeah. It took a really long time to have her one and only child, which to me would indicate that there was possibly a number of um, failed pregnancies right. or some issues, etc. Mm-hmm. Anyway, her husband died. She's left with a uh, a young girl who was her daughter, who was nine, and then she just disappeared. Turns out, mm. her brother-in-law had her committed. Oh no! Because the doctor thought it was her change in life. Oh yeah. So she had menopause. Yeah. The change. And the change. The change. And yeah, it was just too hard basket. He's the brother in law. It's I give these people personality sometimes. Yeah, right. yeah. And I'm yelling at this man going, You're an idiot. <laughs> He's like, I've been supporting this woman. She's poor. She only has one cow. Honestly, this is right. what you know the records are telling yes. me. And anyway, she was in care for 13 years until she died. And I don't think her daughter ever saw her again. Oh, that is so sad. Yeah. Imagine if we just really went around sad. committing women who were suffering from menopause symptoms. Mm. Oh, really common though <sighs> because I'd say they were manic yes. quite often. Same as hysteria Mania. or dif- different? Mm, d- different. Same, there was different. sort of no different, Yeah, mm. no differentiation because it was just, oh, it was a woman's time. It's a time to go. Same with postnatal depression. Oh, dear. Um, quite often too you will see religious mania will be a reason for incarceration, which is really interesting. Okay. So, you know, I don't know what the the timeline for that would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so. All the symptoms. Yes, anyway. what, what would be the symptoms of? I don't know yeah. whether you're trying to extricate the devil or whether no, it's no. just, uh, mm. you know. Possessed. You, you're spouting biblical 
um, yes. Psalms. I don't know. It's, or um, your, that's that's an unknown. Oh, you're heaven forbid, a witch. Well, yes, that is true. Mm. You wouldn't meet a very pretty fate if you said that, would you? No, no. What about you? What have you been up to this week? Um, I've been watching a lot of things and I've been listening to a lot of things and I did have a recommendation. I watched, there's a documentary on Apple TV at the moment called The Supermodels and it looks back at, you know, the four big supermodels that we would have, well, I would have grown up with in the 90s, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford and Naomi Campbell. And it's just such a good documentary. If you like photography and fashion and the history of photography and magazines and the fashion world and all of those sorts of things, which I'm not, you know, a huge fan of, but it was rather interesting I've got to say, and um, yeah, just how they, you know, all started out so young and it's just such a beautiful thing to watch. I think there's four episodes, I've watched three, but um, give that a watch. Mm. And total change of gears, the other thing I watched recently is The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. And this is basically about the girl who was adopted by a family in America, a Ukrainian girl. They didn't couldn't work out if she was lying about her age or if she was actually a child or she was an adult posing as a child. Um, they uh, the parents got her reaged in court because they thought that she was uh, pretending to be younger than she was, and then she was left to sort of fend for herself. She was put into a a unit. Um, the family sort of paid for her to stay in this unit and she just was this weird behaviour and lots of people thinking she's a bit odd, this is something's not right here. But then at every sort of turn of this documentary, there's um, there's I think there's six episodes, you're just bouncing from like, oh, my God, she's lying to, oh, my God, that poor child to you know, the parents are guilty and now the mother's guilty and she's a psychopath and so it just keeps you like on your toes the whole time yeah. and it'll be one of those ones where you'll like scream at the TV, oh, throw something excellent. at the television and just be yeah. like, what? So, yeah, um, recommend. Excellent. Something I have not watched yet but I've just seen advertised and you and I have spoken about the podcast Finding Samantha. Oh. There is... Um, on Paramount Plus called Con Girl. Oh, yeah. I don't know if, how many parts it is. I don't know if it's just one doco, but it is. About um, it's about that and it interviews, like you get to see the people. Oh, I love that. I yeah, love it when you. See who they are. I love it when you watch, yep. a, when you listen to a podcast and then you can watch it, watch the story exactly. of it later. I did that with Who Killed Bob, which is a brilliant podcast, Australian podcast, and then watched the sort of the series on it and the, the documentary that was being made at the same time. So nice. Can't wait to watch that. Mm. Thank you. I know. I haven't watched it either. So, you know, we can watch it um, yeah, in tandem. Okay. And uh, do it. Report yeah. back. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Uh, have you got a historical fact for us today? I do indeed. Uh, so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about photography. Well, isn't that funny because we were just talking about photography and the supermodels. I know. What do you know? What do you know? Um, So the first photo was taken in Australia in Sydney in 1841 and this new technology was 
very slow and expensive and would often include props. So if you've seen old photographs, you've probably seen, you know, someone standing with a book mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. with a plinth next to them or on a lounge, that sort of thing. Uh, so by the 1890s, colour photography, not quite as we would know it today, was being experimented with in Australia. However, what I really wanted to tell you about is a program called the Snapshots from Home League of Australia. Okay. So this was established in Australia in early 1916 by the Sydney director of the YMCA. The league, which had been inspired by the work of the British League of the same name, was operating in London in 1915 and was aimed to help morale on the war front by supplying soldiers with photographs from home to fight the invisible enemy of men at the front, which was heart hunger, loneliness, isolation and homesickness. heart hunger. I know. (laughs) The YMCA distributed application forms to the men on the front and once completed and returned, amateur photographers on the home front were asked to volunteer their time to take photographs of families for the league, which were then forwarded for free to the men on the front. During the First World War, more than 6,000 amateur photographers took part in sending a total of 150,000 photographs to serving men. And the Snapshots from Home League was also active during the Second World War. So I actually first read about this in a contemporary fiction book called The Red Gun River Retreat by Sandy Docker, Mm -hmm. but there's also just been another book uh, recently published, which is on my to-be-read pile, Mm -hmm. which is called Snapshots from Home by Sasha Wosley. So if anyone's interested in that, I'd never heard of this league before and I thought, oh, isn't that lovely? So men and women were involved in this. They weren't paid for their time as far as I'm aware. Sometimes, um, you know, they'd uh, be able to write notes on the back of the photos and that sort of thing. So I just thought it was really lovely way to communicate with your loved ones and it could be the only the only way to get a photo as well because photography is expensive. So being able to have that and being able to have a piece of home with you uh, while you're fighting the war. It's pretty amazing. It's beautiful. Beautiful fact. We didn't go to the dark and scary depths that we knew usually no well wait till next week (laughs) today i am going to tell you all about a woman whose legacy led to the development of the environmental protection agency otherwise known as the epa and the regulation of the pesticide ddt Rachel Carson was born on May 27, 1907 on her family's farm near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As a child, she spent a lot of time exploring the farm and she also loved to read. Her favourite author was Beatrix Potter and the natural world, in particular the ocean, was often a common thread in the books that she loved to read. When she was just eight years old, she began writing her own stories, which often involved animals. And at the age of just 10, she had her first story published in one of her favourite magazines, the St. Nicholas Magazine, which was a popular monthly American children's magazine. Uh, At school, she kept to herself and was known as a bit of a loner. She graduated from high school at the top of her class of 45 students in 1925 and went on to study at the Pennsylvania College for Women, where she naturally set out to study English as her major. However, a little while into her studies, she switched her major to biology. 
She wouldn't lose her passion, though, for writing and she continued to contribute to the school's student newspaper. In 1928, she was accepted into John Hopkins University for her final year of study, but she had to decline the offer due to not being able to afford it. So she stayed on at Pennsylvania Women's College and graduated in 1929. After she graduated, she took a summer course at the Marine Biological Laboratory and went on to continue her studies in zoology and genetics at John Hopkins University later that year. Fun fact, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Did you? Loved biology at school. Absolutely loved it. It was my favourite subject. Of course, that didn't uh, eventuate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but every time I see or hear or read about someone becoming a marine biologist, I'm like, oh. You know, and the funny thing is I hate diving. I hate snorkeling. I hate scuba diving. So I don't know how that was going to work out because. Mm. A glass bottom boat. Tra- that'll do me. Not having Absolutely. to get in the water. Yes. Or I could have mm. just done stuff around the shoreline. Oh, yes. You know? <laughs> Didn't have to go deep sea researching. <laughs> After her first year, she moved to part-time study and took an assistantship in a lab to earn money for um, to pay for her tuition. After a few false starts, she completed her dissertation on the embryonic development of the pronophrose in fish and earned a master's degree in zoology in June 1932. She had intended to continue on for a doctorate but was forced to leave to search for a full-time teaching position to help support her family because it was the Great Depression time. So in 1935, uh, her father died suddenly and she was left to take care of her ageing mother. Although it was hard for her to keep focusing on her study, a mentor of hers at the time convinced her to take a temporary position with the US Bureau of Fisheries. The job involved writing radio copy for a series of weekly educational broadcasts entitled Romance Under the Waters. The series, oh, fancy. the series of 52 <laughs> seven-minute programs focused on aquatic life and was intended to generate public interest in fish biology and the Bureau's work. Although many writers had tried before to make fish biology and the Bureau appealing, Rachel was the only one who managed to do it. Her supervisor was so pleased with the success of the radio series that he asked her to write the introductions to a lot of the public brochures about the Fisheries Bureau. He also helped secure her a full-time position and after sitting the civil service exam where she outscored all other applicants, she became the second woman hired by the Bureau of Fisheries in a full-time professional position as a junior aquatic biologist. Good on her. Her main responsibilities at the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries were to analyse and report field data on fish populations and write brochures and other literature for the general public. Using her research and consultations with marine biologists as starting points, she also wrote a steady stream of articles for the Baltimore Sun and other popular newspapers. She had finally found a way to combine her two great loves, writing and the natural world. In July 1937, the Atlantic Monthly accepted a revised version of an essay, The World of Waters, which she had originally written for her first Fisheries Bureau brochure, but her supervisor said it was too good for that purpose and told her to hang on to it. (laughs) 
It was published in the Atlantic as Undersea and was described as a vivid narrative of a journey along the ocean floor. This marked a major turning point in her writing career. The essay caught the attention of publishing house Simon and Schuster and they contacted her to expand it into a book. So her first book, Under the Sea Wind, was published in 1941 and although it received excellent reviews, it didn't sell very many copies. Mm. Tragedy struck for a second time when her older sister died and she became the sole breadwinner for her mother and her two nieces. Although her responsibilities had increased, she continued writing articles for the Bureau, which was now known as the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, In 1945, she was supervising a small writing team, and in 1949, she became the chief editor of publications. Mm. Although this position provided a lot of opportunities for field work and she could choose her writing projects, she hated the tedious administrative responsibilities that came with it. Don't we all, darling? Admin. By 1948, she had begun working on material for a second book and had made the conscious decision to begin a transition to writing full-time. So she takes on her first literary agent, Marie Rodell, who would become her agent for the rest of her writing career. Oxford University Press showed interest in her next book, which was set to be a life history of the ocean. Before its release, chapters of the book appeared in the Science Digest and the Yale Review, and one of her chapters, The Birth of an Island, won the American Association for the Advancement of Science's George Westinghouse Science Writing Prize. Nine chapters of the book were also serialised in The New Yorker beginning in June 1951 and the book was published as The Sea Around Us in July 1951 by Oxford University Press. The Sea Around Us remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks. Wow. Right? I know. It was abridged by Reader's Digest. They loved an abridged version of things. Mm. Uh, it won the 1952 National Book Award for Nonfiction and the John Burroughs Medal and resulted in Rachel being awarded two honorary doctorates. The success of the second book led to the republication of her first book, Under the Sea Wind, which became a bestseller as well. With this, yay! Yay, with this success uh, came financial security and in 1952 she was able to give up her job in order to concentrate on writing full-time. After these successes, she was naturally inundated with requests for speaking engagements and her book, The Sea Around Us, was commissioned as a documentary by Erwin Allen However, she was very unhappy with what he was proposing. She found that his virgin, virgin, no, 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 well, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't know. True. She found that his version didn't represent the true feeling of the book and found it scientifically embarrassing, describing it as a cross between a believe it or not and a breezy travelogue. She discovered that her right to review the script didn't include having any control over the actual content and the documentary went ahead with many scientific inconsistencies. Although she had tried to fix them, he went ahead and succeeded in producing his version of the documentary and went on to win the 1953 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. (gasps) What a... So because of this, she never sold rights to her books for a film ever again. Good. 
on her. In the same year, 1953, Rachel meets her lifelong friend, Dorothy Freeman. Rachel would spend summers in Southport Island, Maine, and Dorothy had written her a letter welcoming her to the neighbourhood. Dorothy knew she was a popular author and wanted to kind of get in get in on the good side. This would mm-hmm, be the beginning mm-hmm. of a devoted friendship that would last for the rest of Rachel's life. Their relationship was conducted mainly through letters and over the 12 years of their friendship, they exchanged around 900 letters. Many of these letters uh, were destroyed, but the surviving correspondence was published in 1995 as Always Rachel, the letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, 1952 to 1964, an intimate portrait of a remarkable friendship. Uh, And it was edited by Martha Freeman, Dorothy's granddaughter. Some believe Freeman and Carson's relationship was romantic in nature, but others believe it was just a beautiful representation of a platonic relationship between two best friends. Oh, yeah. That's nice. It's nice, isn't it? Uh, so in the same year that she meets Dorothy, she begins library and field research on the ecology and organisms of the Atlantic shore. And in 1955, she completes the third volume of her sea trilogy, The Edge of the Sea, which focuses on life in coastal ecosystems. See, I could have done that, The Edge of the Sea. Yeah. I didn't have to go in, just hang around the edges. Just get your toes totally. wet. <laughs> Through 1955 and 1956, she keeps writing articles for popular magazines and plans her next book, which was to address evolution, but she found it difficult to know where to start and to find a poetic angle. During the same time, her attention moved to conservation. She was involved with the Nature Conservancy and other conservation groups and also made plans to buy and preserve from development an area in Maine she and Dorothy had called the Lost Woods. In early 1957, family tragedy struck for the third time when one of her nieces she had cared for since the 1940s died at the age of just 31, leaving her five-year-old son, Roger, an orphan. Rachel took on the responsibility for Roger and officially adopted him and moves to Silver Spring, Maryland to care for Roger. Love it. <laughs> little Roger. Imagine being a little, little Roger. Roger. Little child Roger. Yeah. <laughs> and she also spends much of 1957 studying specific environmental threats. By late 1957, she was closely following federal proposals for widespread pesticide spraying. The United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, planned to eradicate fire ants. During this time, other spraying programs involving chlorinated hydrocarbons and organophosphates were on the rise. Mm -hmm. However, this wasn't the first time the use of pesticides caught Rachel's attention. Starting in the mid-1940s, she had become concerned about the use of synthetic pesticides, many of which had been developed through the military funding of science since World War II. However, the United States federal government's 1957 gypsy moth, now called spongy moth, eradication program prompted her to devote her research and her next book to pesticides and environmental poisons. The gypsy moth program involved aerial spraying of DDT and other pesticides mixed with fuel oil, including the spraying of private land. Landowners on Long Island filed a lawsuit to have the spraying stopped and many in affected regions followed the case closely. 
Although the lawsuit was lost, the Supreme Court granted petitioners the right to gain injunctions against potential environmental damage in the future. This laid the basis for later successful environmental actions. The Audubon, the Audubon Naturalist Society, who was also actively opposed to these spraying programs, recruited Rachel to help shine a spotlight on the government's spraying practices. Rachel had a specific style of writing that was easy for the general public to digest complex science information. This work would kick off her next book, a four-year project that would become Silent Spring. As her research progressed, she found a sizable community of scientists who were documenting the physiological and environmental effects of pesticides. She also took advantage of her her connections with many government scientists who supplied her with confidential information. There was also two notable women that also helped with her research, Marjorie Spock and Mary T. Richards of Long Island, New York, who contested Mm -hmm. the aerial spraying of DDT. They compiled their evidence and shared it with Rachel, who used the trial transcripts as primary input for Silent Spring. Rachel said of the content she had access to, it was a goldmine of information. I feel guilty about the mass of material I have here. So DDT is... Are you ready? (laughs) Here here she goes. Dichlorodipphenyltric. Chloroethane. <laughs> That's just called Let's DDT. Just call it DDT. <laughs> <laughs> Is a colourless, tasteless, and almost odourless crystalline chemical compound. Originally developed as an insecticide, it became infamous for its environmental impacts. DDT was first synthesized in 1874 and Its insecticidal action was discovered by the Swiss chemist Paul Hermann Müller in 1939. DDT was used in the second half of World War II to limit the spread of the insect-borne diseases, malaria and typhus among civilians and troops. So they were just going around willy-nilly spraying this shit Mm. like it was nobody's business without... And there's, and there's no way if you're up there spraying, you can be like, yeah, I'm spraying this paddock. That's great. But do you know what wind does? It's, well, <laughs> it's funny that you say that because she does actually have a specific word. Yeah, she said her main argument is that pesticides have detrimental effects on the environment and they should more properly be termed biocides, not pesticides, because their effects are rarely limited to the targeted pests. Mm. Yeah, if you're just spraying or like dusting or whatever they do, you know, when they're doing from, you know, at height, how can you, you can't just say just land on that one. Mm. And that's why it is so difficult to um, be certified as organic as well. Yeah. Because there are so many external factors that you can't control, like say the farm next to you is not organic or they're mostly organic yeah. but there's yeah there's just so many cross contaminations and what's in the air or know, in the water that you can't control at the t- in the water table and all of that stuff yeah exactly um so in 1959 the USDA's Agricultural Research Service responded to the criticism by Rachel and others with a public service film called Fire Ant on Trial <laughs> Oof. 
<laughs> Rachel categorized it as flagrant propaganda that ignored the dangers that spraying pesticides pose to humans and wildlife. That spring, she wrote a letter published in the Washington Post that attributed the recent decline in bird populations, in her words, the silencing of birds to pesticide mm. overuse. Rachel attended the subsequent FDA hearings on revising pesticide regulations. She came away discouraged by the aggressive tactics of the chemical industry representatives, which included expert testimony that was firmly contradicted by the bulk of the scientific literature she had been studying. She also wondered about the possible financial inducements behind the certain pesticide programs. She also predicted increased consequences in the future, especially as targeted pests develop pesticide resistance. At the same time, weakened ecosystems fall prey to unanticipated invasive species. The book closes with a call for a biotic approach to pest control as an alternative to chemical pesticides. In regards to the pesticide DDT, she never actually called for an outright ban in her book. Part of the argument she made was that even if DDT and other insecticides had no environmental side effects, their indiscriminate overuse was counterproductive because it would create insect resistance to the pesticides, making the pesticides useless in eliminating the target insect populations. She writes, No responsible person contends that insect-borne diseases should be ignored. The question that has now urgently presented itself is whether it is either wise or responsible to attack the problem by methods that are rapidly making it worse. The world has heard much of the triumphant war against disease by controlling insect vectors of infection. However, it has heard little of the other side of the story the defeats, the short-lived triumphs that now strongly support the alarming view that the insect enemy has been made actually stronger by our efforts. Even worse, we may have destroyed our very means of fighting. Although most of the book is devoted to pesticides' effects on natural ecosystems, four chapters also detail cases of human pesticide poisoning, cancer and other illnesses attributed to pesticides. Throughout her research, she was also brought into contact with medical researchers investigating the gamut of cancer-causing chemicals. Of particular significance was the work of the National Cancer Institute, researcher and environmental cancer section founding director Willem Huper, who classified many pesticides as carcinogen. Rachel found evidence to support the pesticide-cancer connection. In 1960, she had more than enough research material and the book was well underway. However, ironically, just as she was completing the drafts of the two cancer chapters in her book, she discovered a cyst in her left breast and had to undergo a mastectomy. Although her doctor described the procedure as precautionary and recommended no further treatment, by December, she discovered that the tumour was malignant and the cancer had metastasized. It just mm -hmm. like cruelly, knock you when you're cruelly down. Cruelly ironic. Mm. While writing the book, she chose to hide her illness so that the pesticide companies could not use it against her. She worried that if the companies knew, they would use it as ammunition to make her book look untrustworthy and biased. Rachel and her agent knew that the book would face harsh criticism and at this time Rachel was also undergoing radiation therapy and expected to have little energy to, to devote to defending her work and responding to cri critics. So in anticipation they tried to rally as much support as possible before the book was officially published so they tried to kind of get ahead of it. Although quite ill and weak from her treatment, she attended the White House Conference on Conservation in May 1962 and proof copies of her new book, 
were given to many of the delegates. Among many others, she also sent a proof copy to Supreme Court Associate Justice William O. Douglas, a longtime environmental advocate who had argued against the court's rejection of the Long Island pesticide spraying case that I talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Silent Spring was published on September 27, 1962. Finding a title for the book proved difficult, but Rachel finally agreed to the suggestion by her literary agent, Marie, Silent Spring, which would be a metaphorical title for the entire book, suggesting a bleak future for the whole natural world. Though Silent Spring had generated a relatively high level of interest based on pre-publication promotion, This became much more intense with the serialisation in The New Yorker, which began on June 16, 1962. This brought the book to the attention of the chemical industry and its lobbyists and a huge American audience. Around that time, she also learned that Silent Spring had been selected as the book of the month for October. So the book of the month was a United States subscription-based e-commerce service That was founded in 1926 that offered a selection of five to seven new hardcover books each month to its members. So it was kind of one of those mail order, you know, writing what you want. So as she put it, this would carry it to the farms and the hamlets all over the country where people don't know what a bookstore looks like, much less the New Yorker. Just as she predicted in the weeks leading up to the uh, release of the book, there was strong opposition to Silent Spring from the chemical industry. DuPont, the main manufacturer of DDT, was the first to respond. DuPont compiled an extensive report on the book's press coverage and estimated impact on public opinion. Other chemical companies threatened legal action against her unless the planned Silent Spring editorial features were cancelled. Chemical industry representatives and lobbyists also lodged a range of non-specific complaints, some anonymously. Chemical companies and associated organisations produced a number of their own brochures and articles promoting and defending pesticide use. Others went so far as to attack her scientific credentials because her training was in marine biology rather than biochemistry and also her character, calling her hysterical Mm. and labelling her as a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that, that's not an insult to me. I no. want to be a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature. Mm. I want to head up that bloody club. While former US Secretary of Agriculture Ezra Taft Benson, in a letter to former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, reportedly concluded that because she was unmarried, despite being physically attractive, she was probably a communist. <laughs> of course, that that would be the connection. I would totally, make. definitely. Yeah. I mean, I love <laughs> that it it's just like um, because she was unmarried, despite being physically attractive. Mm. <sighs> Uh, Many critics repeatedly asserted that she was calling for elimination of all pesticides. However, she had made it clear she was not advocating the banning or complete withdrawal of helpful pesticides but was instead encouraging responsible 
and carefully managed use with an awareness of the chemical's impact on the entire ecosystem. In her book, Silent Spring, she actually concludes her section on DDT, not by urging a total ban, but by advice for spraying as little as possible to limit the development of resistance. Due to the book and its publicity, pesticide use became a major public issue, especially after a CBS Reports TV special, The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson, aired on April 3rd, 1963. The program included segments of Rachel reading from Silent Spring and interviews with several other experts, mostly critics. Despite this, reactions from the estimated audience of 10 to 15 million were overwhelmingly positive and the program spurred a congressional review of the pesticide dangers and the public release of a pesticide report by the President's Science Advisory Committee. In one of her last public appearances, she testified before President John F. Kennedy's Science Advisory Committee. The committee issued its report on May 15, 1963, largely backing her scientific claims. Following the report's release, she also testified before a United States Senate subcommittee to make policy recommendations. Though she received hundreds of other speaking invitations, she could not accept the great majority of them. Her health was steadily declining as her cancer outpaced the radiation therapy with only brief periods of remission. However, she spoke as much as she was physically able, including a notable appearance on the Today Show and speeches at several dinners held in her honour. In late 1963, she received a flurry of awards and honours, the Audubon Medal from the National Audubon Society, the Cullum Geographical Medal from the American Geographical Society, and induction into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 1964, she became ill with a respiratory virus. Her condition worsened, and in February, doctors found that she had severe anemia from her radiation treatments. In March, they discovered that the cancer had reached her liver and she died of a heart attack on April 14, 1964, in her home in Silver Spring, Maryland. Rachel Carson's work had a powerful impact on the environmental movement. Silent Spring, in particular, was a rallying point for the fledging social movement in the 1960s. Her work and the activism it inspired are at least partly responsible for the deep ecology movement and the overall strength of the grassroots environmental movement since the 1960s. Her most direct legacy in the environmental movement was the campaign to ban DDT in the United States and related efforts to ban or limit its use throughout the world. Though environmental concerns about DDT had been considered by government agencies as early as her testimony, before the President's Science Advisory Committee. The 1967 formation of the Environmental Defence Fund was the first significant milestone in the campaign against DDT. The organisation brought lawsuits against the government to establish a citizen's right to clean environment. By 1972, the Environmental Defence Fund and other activist groups had succeeded in securing a phase-out of DDT use in the United States, except in emergency cases. The creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, otherwise known as EPA, by the Nixon administration in 1970 addressed another concern that Rachel had brought to light in her book. Until then, the same agency, the USDA, was responsible both for regulating pesticides and promoting the concerns of the agriculture (laughs) industry. (laughs) Rachel saw this as a conflict of interest since the agency was not responsible for 
for effects on wildlife or other environmental concerns beyond farm policy. Fifteen years after its creation, one journalist described the EPA as the extended shadow of Silent Spring. Much of the agency's early work, such as enforcing the 1972 Federal Insecticide, Fungicide and Rodenticide Act, was directly related to Rachel Carson's work. Various groups ranging from government institutions to environmental and conversation, no, (laughs) and conservation organisations to scholarly societies have celebrated Rachel Carson's life and work since her death. Perhaps most significantly on June 9, 1980, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honour in the United States. She also has not one but two statues. In her honour. <gasps> the Former Vice President of the United States and environmentalist Al Gore wrote an introduction to the 1992 edition of Silent Spring. He wrote, Silent Spring had a profound impact. Indeed, Rachel Carson was one of the reasons that I became so conscious of the environment and so involved with the environmental issues. She has had as much or more effect on me than any other and perhaps than all of them together. And that is the amazing story of Rachel Mm. Carson who brought environmental issues to the masses of America in a way that only she could. Well done, Rachel. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And what do we learn from that, friends? Take care of our planet. Take take (sighs) care of the bloody planet. I know, right? It's frightening. So well done, Rachel, and, yeah. um, you know, it took a woman, of course, to, yeah, talk some sense into these bloody pesticide companies who were obviously making pests, who were pests and obviously making pests. a shit ton of money. So, mm. hello, look at Erin Brock. Yes. I mean, you've got a contemporary story right Yes, there. exactly, <laughs> exactly, that's mm. right. Uh, we'll be back next week. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, subscribe, follow us on the Instagrams, all of those things. And, yeah, we'll be back in your ears next yeah. week. We will see you yeah. then. Bye. Bye. Bye.